Well, we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 11 this morning, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you have your bulletin, it's on the back, and we'll also have it on the screen. So if you are literate, then you are in good shape this morning. Um, So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll dive in. God, thank you so much for the honor it is to be an ordained minister of your word and for the honor it is to be with my church family bringing the word. I pray that you would bless your word, bless Mark chapter 11, and I pray that you would teach all of us this morning about who you are and what the triumphal entry has to do with Americans in the 21st century May you be glorified and may the, the gospel of hope be clearly communicated through my words and through the sacraments and through your holy word and through worship. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, it'll be no surprise to you that I'm gonna start by telling you a story. And this is kind of a, a series of stories and it's weird. So <clears throat> probably... 12, 15 years ago, when I still lived in Nashville, I was driving on the interstate during rush hour one day, and as I was driving, I saw a woman on the left-hand shoulder of the road, and she was pulled over, and she was just standing there looking distressed and helpless because she had clearly broken down, and I was going probably like 20, and I was just kind of like, someone should help her. You know, and um, and I rationalized quickly, like, well, I've got places to be, and I don't. I'm not very good with cars. I would just stand there looking distressed too. So I kept driving, and then shortly after that, I passed a billboard, and I think it was an ad campaign that United Way was doing at the time, and it in quotes just said, "Someone should help those people." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, God, I hear what you're saying." And I was like, okay, I do have a cell phone. Maybe she doesn't have a phone. And I have AAA. And at the very least, she wouldn't have to stand there alone. So I can go do something. So, you know, I had to go to the next exit and get off and then get back on the interstate and go down to the next exit and get off. And by the time I got to where the car had been broken down, she was gone. I didn't see her car. I didn't see any evidence that there had ever been a car there. Then about a year later... Uh, my band was on tour and I was driving late at night and I was the only one awake and the same thing happened. Um, and I was driving fast and didn't see it until the last minute, but I was like, I should probably, you know, it's middle of the night. I should probably stop. Same thing. Had to get off. By the time I got back around, they weren't there. I'm not kidding. When I tell you that happened two more times after that. And The third time that it happened, I was like, I'm going to get off and turn around, and I know they're not going to be there, but I'm going to do it, and and that's exactly how it played out, and the thing is, I don't know exactly what to make of it. I don't know if this was angels. I don't know if God was testing me. I don't know if there's some logical explanation, but I know that even though I didn't end up doing anything for them, I was obedient when I heard God calling. You know what I mean? And so I had peace. Um, but so when I was in seminary, I remember in one of my preaching classes, the professor said, never give a sermon illustration where you're the hero. And so 
just to clear up any misconceptions that I might be the hero, I want to tell you what happened last week. So, um, as many of you know, if you were here, I was ordained to be an assistant pastor here at Orangewood last week. It was a great day. It was a very exciting day. Um, but thank you very much. Thank you. I, it is a profound honor, and I'm so grateful. Brandy and I both are. Um, but, you know, I sang a song and I had things to do and I was doing the benediction for the first time. And there were a lot of moving pieces and I was kind of nervous. And I got here, I was coming early for music rehearsal. And as I pulled on the Maitland Concourse, which is basically on church property, someone was broken down. And I, like, without even thinking about it, I was like, there's going to be like 400 Christians driving past them today. <laughs> Someone's going to stop. And, and I, I th- in my mind, I literally was like, I don't have much to offer them, and I've, I've got I've to go serve the king, right? But what did the king say? He said, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And that's sobering, because a pastor, on his first day being a pastor, drove past the king and did not help him. So... When it comes to my serving the king, I'm inconsistent at best. So no hero here. I'm not a great example. But we're going to come back to that. But today we're looking at the triumphal entry. It's what it's come to be known as. And we celebrate it um, every year, a week before Easter, and it's Palm Sunday. So in the story that we're looking at, first century um, Israel, for centuries prior to this, there had been a sense of expectancy as God's people waited for the Messiah which was God's anointed king. And they were waiting for someone who would bring deliverance to God's chosen people, to Israel. And in Mark 11, Jesus' followers are starting to see that just as Peter confessed in Mark 8, that Jesus is the Christ, which means anointed one. He is the king that we've been waiting for. So read with me in Mark 11, starting verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So uh, this is really kind of the prologue to the triumphal entry. Um, and you have to wonder why Mark's given these details, because he's not big on details. It's a pretty short book. But <clears throat> I think it's, uh, it gives some credibility to the story, that it's not just some legendary story, but he's specifically telling us where it took place near Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And it's important that he grounds this in history because it's the fulfillment of a prophecy about the Messiah from the Old Testament, roughly 500 years before that. In Zechariah 9, it says, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Mark doesn't tell us specifically whether it's a donkey or if it's a horse, but in Matthew's account, he specifies it's a donkey. So 
Here, Jesus is fulfilling yet another Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. And skeptics would say that uh, this is a legend that developed later and Christians kind of injected this back into the story. But I want you to remember that the gospel writer Mark was a disciple of Simon Peter. So in essence, this is Peter's eyewitness account of what happened. And he even tells us how Jesus got the donkey. And it's a weird story. I want you to imagine if you're one of Jesus' disciples coming into Jerusalem with you and you've just seen him do all these miracles and he says, go to the nearest town and untie a donkey and bring it to me. Be like, okay, my Lord, um, you want us to steal a donkey for you? <laughs> no, no, don't, don't steal it. Just tell him, tell him you'll send it back later. Like, okay. Okay, that's a weird ask, Jesus. What does that even mean, send it back later? Is it just gonna automatically know where to go? It's a weird story. And some people, you know, think maybe Jesus prearranged this, but to me, it kind of feels like a miracle. And if I'm really honest about it, I usually envision that Jesus gave these two disciples like power to do Jedi mind tricks. And, and they, you know, went to these two people and they're like, what are you doing with the donkey? And they were like, the Lord needs the donkey. He'll send it back later. And they're like, the Lord needs. So what we see though, regardless of how it played out, is that these followers of Jesus have come to believe that Jesus is king. And so they follow the king's orders. And sometimes the king calls us to do something that is completely uncomfortable. Uh, like in my case, like pulling over to help someone when their car is broken down, when you have literally no skills in helping them with a broken down car. But when Christ calls us, it's the true test of whether he's our king or not. And we're faced with these kind of decisions every day. And sometimes it passes in a moment, like as fast as you can drive by someone on the interstate. But sometimes we hear the calling of the king for days or weeks or months. Go talk to him. Just talk to him. Write the letter that you've been thinking about writing. Or just go tell her that you're sorry. Tell them that they hurt you. Or maybe as you go to school, it's don't be ashamed of the gospel. Maybe as you go to work, it's don't act like you're just like them. Every day we have opportunities to show our allegiance to the king but he doesn't always ask us to do things that make sense to us or feel comfortable to us. But when he told two of his disciples to go get a colt, whether it made sense or not, they got it. And we'll read on in verse seven and see what happened after they got it. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So, I think most of you probably know by this point that in the first century, the Jews were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And we've talked quite a lot about how the Messiah that they expected, that they wanted, was going to be a great warrior who was going to come and crush Rome. 
But this wasn't the first time that God's people had been oppressed by an empire. And even in their recent history, it wasn't the first time. Between Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and Mark, there was roughly 400 years in there. And a lot happens in 400 years. I want you to imagine if someone was studying American history 2,000 years from now, so the year 4020, they were studying American history, but they had no record of what happened between the years 1620 and 2020. Would they have missed much? I mean, when we think about 400 years passing in the Bible, we're just like, okay, and then 400 years later, but so much happens in 400 years. If I were to mention a terrorist flying a plane into a building, every single one of you in this room knows exactly what I mean, and it bears a weight and feels almost taboo for me to mention that. And Someone in 4020 would be able to gather from context that that's not a good thing, but it wouldn't bear the weight. Because even if you weren't alive in 2001, if I say 9-11, everyone in this room knows what I'm talking about. Well, in the same way, in that 400-year gap, some significant things happened in Israel's history. And about 200 years before Christ, Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, was oppressed by a Syrian group called the Seleucids. And when they gained control of Judea, they were very cruel to the Jews. And one of the main things they were trying to do was force their culture, including their Greek gods, on the Jews. But a Jew named Mattathias stood up to the Seleucids, and he started a rebellion that's now known as the Maccabean Revolt. And for the next 20 years, Mattathias and his sons revolted against the Seleucids until Judea was liberated. Now, for some of you, this might be the first time you've heard that story, but do you kind of follow me on this? So very similar situation. They're under the thumb of an empire that does not respect their God. And here comes Mattathias and his sons to revolt against them. Mattathias and his sons were heroes of the Jews. Everybody in first century Jerusalem would have known about them. Mattathias had two most famous sons, and they were named Simon and Judas. So it's very likely that even Jesus' apostles, some of them were named after these Jewish heroes. And we know about this account from the book of First Maccabees, and some like the, the people doing the slides are like, whoa, you're ordained now, and you're going to read First Maccabees. I see how it is. Uh, I, I want to I make it clear, this is not scripture, this is not the inspired word of God, but it is a historical account of what happened between the Old and New Testament and in the life of the Jews. So read what 1 Maccabees 13 says about Simon after he liberated Judea and was on his way to the temple. It says, the Jews entered in it with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. This was the hope of every first century Jew as they looked to a Messiah, that it would be someone who would crush and remove the enemy. And here enters Jesus. And so they treat Jesus as royalty in the same way that they were bringing out palm branches. And there was this procession 
For Simon, as he went to the temple, you've got the same thing going on with Jesus. And they shout, Hosanna. And they're quoting Psalm 118. Hosanna means save, I pray. It's a, it's a prayer, but it's also a declaration. You are the holy king. You are king and savior. And they were right to look at Jesus and shout, Hosanna. Amen? In fact, as we look forward to the day of the Lord, we long for the day that our king returns and puts all of our enemies and all his enemies under his feet. We long for the day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But they were wrong about the kind of king and savior that Jesus would be because he didn't come with a sword to crush Rome. And after this huge procession and Jesus enters the temple, imagine the expectation, okay? Because they're thinking, here's one, maybe like Simon, maybe greater than Simon. What's he gonna do? For us, the climax is seeing this procession and hearing them shout Hosanna and seeing them lay their cloaks on the ground. But for them, they thought the climax was coming when he got to the temple. But look at what happens in verse 11 when he goes to the temple, He looks around and then went home. It was very anticlimactic. And I know by now you might be thinking, yep, we get it. Pastors, we've heard you talk for weeks now about how Jesus was not the king they were looking for. We get it. But I want you to understand this is our story because when Jesus got to the temple, surely they were thinking, Do something. Jesus, do something. Are you going to do anything? And if we're honest, we want a king who does our bidding. We want a king who takes away our suffering and our sin and our heartbreak. And we want it now. We don't want to wait till the day of the Lord. Most of humanity's deepest questions at their core all have to do with Jesus. We hear people say, why do bad things happen to good people? If God is in control, why is there so much corruption? And at the heart of it, we're asking, is the king really good? Is the king really wise? Is he really for me? Is he going to do anything? And for those of us here who know the king, who have experienced the love and the grace of the king, we can answer with a resounding, yes, he is good and he is wise and he is all powerful and he has a plan and it's for his glory, but it's also for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. But to follow the king means we give our allegiance to him even when we don't understand what he's up to. His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So it's hard. Let's keep reading in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So 
it seems like Jesus was hangry, right? Um, and if you don't know what hangry means, it means you're so hungry that you're angry. And if we're really honest, there are probably several people in this room who have been so hungry that they cursed, right? Jesus was so hungry that he cursed a fig tree. And this is an aside. I don't know if it's important or not, but uh, in the first verse, it tells us that they're near Bethany and Bethphage. I'm saying Bethphage. Some people say Bethpage, but there's an H in there. I'm going to pronounce it. So Bethphage literally means house of unripe figs. I don't know if that's significant or not, but I feel like it's worth mentioning. But the weirdest part of this story is Jesus curses this fig tree because it's not bearing fruit. But in verse 13, that last clause says, because it was not the season for figs. What's up with that? He cursed the tree and it's not even the tree's fault. And we could think, well, maybe Jesus just wasn't familiar with the way, you know, fig trees work. Maybe he saw leaves and he's like, I want a fig. There's going to be a fig there. Oh, turns out it's not the season for figs. Didn't know. Peter should have told me that. But two chapters later, when Jesus is talking about the coming of the son of man, he says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus knew about the season for figs to bear fruit so well that he used it as a sermon illustration. So we can't blame it on ignorance. He's looking for a tree to bear fruit when it can't, and then he curses it because it doesn't, and that seems harsh, doesn't it? I mean, is this confusing for any of you? Because I think it's weird. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what's up with this. And Mark doesn't come back to the fig tree until verse 20. There's something interesting about Mark. He uses a literary technique that biblical scholars have come to refer to as Mark sandwiches, okay? And so basically what he will do is he'll tell a story, and before he finishes telling it, he'll break away and he'll tell a different story. And then he'll come back and finish the first story. And when you look at them as a whole, it brings a richer meaning. And so if we look at what happens between the two accounts of the fig tree, which is kind of like the bread, we'll find the meat in the middle. Does that make sense? And that's also why I named today's sermon, Jesus was hungry and Mark made a sandwich. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so let's read on. This is, this is the middle part of the story. Mark eleven fifteen to 19. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be a, called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So usually when we talk about this story, in fact, in your bulletin, or if you were looking in your Bible, this little section will say, Jesus cleanses the temple. 
But really, it's not about Jesus cleansing the temple. It's about Jesus cursing the temple the same way he cursed the fig tree. If Jesus were cleansing the temple, that would mean that when he ran out all the merchants and not just the merchants, but it says also the people who were buying, that the temple was going to be all clean and good to go. But that's not what the case is. When Jesus said it was a den of robbers, it wasn't just an indictment on using the temple for commercialism. It was an indictment on the entire temple. In the 400 years between the Old and New Testament, the temple had grown incredibly corrupt. The priesthood could be bought and sold, and the priests were known for living in luxury, but exploiting the poor, even their own people. But I think this is the worst thing. The temple, which was meant to be a light to the nations, right? If you go back to the very first calling of Abraham, it's about being a blessing to the nations. It was meant to be a light to the nations, but it had come to symbolize nationalism and condemnation. And I think it's very significant that Jesus, of all the Old Testament places that he could have gone to talk about the temple, he said, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. But the part of the temple that the high priest had allowed merchants to come into was the part of the temple that Gentiles were supposed to go into. So basically what they had done is they had displaced the Gentiles and replaced it with merchants and money changers. See, the fig tree had leaves and it had the appearance of fruitfulness, but it was fruitless. So Jesus cursed it. And Jesus, Jesus was acting out something tangible to illustrate God's judgment on the temple. And it's the same thing that prophets did in the Old Testament to act out God's judgment on Israel then. In the same way, the temple was beautiful from the outside, but Inside, it was rotten to the core and it bore no fruit. So Jesus cursed it. And then in verse 20, Mark returns to the fig tree. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In verse 23, Jesus says, Whoever says to this mountain. And I think when he said this mountain, he was referring to the temple mount. I think that Jesus is connecting the cursing of the fig tree to the temple. And by coming back to the fig tree after the cursing of the temple, Mark emphasizes that what Jesus curses will be cursed. His word stands forever. So he cursed the fig tree and it was dead the next day. And we know that Jesus cursed the temple. And in 70 AD, it was destroyed. And this should be sobering to us. And here's why. As 
as we know, the gospel is good news, but it always has to be bad news first. The question is, who can bear fruit when it isn't the season to bear fruit? And of course, we aren't talking about figs anymore. We're talking about if you were to Google bear fruit Bible, you would find probably 50 references all over the Old and New Testament about bearing fruit. And it's always a metaphor for the righteousness and obedience of God's people. But who can bear fruit when it isn't the season to bear fruit? Romans 3 says there's no one righteous. No, not one. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, does this mean that we are going to be cursed too? If we aren't able in our own strength and our own power to bear fruit, because it's not even the season to bear fruit, are we cursed too? And the answer is yes. Apart from the grace of and the salvation of King Jesus, we are going to be cursed. And that's the part of the story as Presbyterians who preach grace. We don't like that part of the story. But when John the Baptist came preaching, he said, a tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to get chopped down and burned. And when Jesus came preaching, he said the exact same thing. It's bad news. But in Romans 3, Paul goes on to say that there's righteousness in God for those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And in John 15, 5, Jesus, not long, probably just hours before he's betrayed and arrested, tells his closest friends, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It's only in and through Christ that we're able to bear fruit. And it won't be our sacrifices like the sacrifices of the priests in the temple. It won't be our works, but our faith. And that's what Jesus emphasized. And then he told his disciples to forgive. And why? What does that have to do with cursing? What does that have to do with the temple? What does that have to do with having faith in God? In Matthew 12, 6 Jesus said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And he was talking about himself. When Jesus died, he made one offering once and for all. And we no longer need the sacrifices of the temple. When he died and bled for us and rose again, he brought us near to God. We don't have to go to a temple We don't need any intermediary because if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have the spirit of the living God in our hearts, every single place that we can go. We may look at corruption and horrible things that are being done in the name of God, but Christ reminds us, forgive others because you need forgiveness too. Only one greater than the temple can curse the temple. But I imagine as his friends saw him running people out, they were thinking, yeah, and stay out. But Jesus says, forgive them. Even after he condemned the temple, he said, forgive them. 
even after nails were driven into his hands and he drank the cup of God's wrath for us and took the curse upon himself, he said, Father, forgive them. So, because our king conquered not just an empire, but sin and death itself, all those who proclaim that he is Lord have the spirit of the living God. We are declared righteous. And we can bear good fruit. Amen? So, what's the king calling you to do this week? What's the uncomfortable, nonsensical thing that the king is calling you to do this week? And when the king entered Jerusalem, we saw pilgrims, some of them probably walking 12, 40, 80 miles to go to a festival. And they have the only cloak in their possession and they lay it down to be walked over in the dirt by a donkey. What are you willing to lay down for your king this week? And as we look around and see corruption and unrighteousness and horrible things even being done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he reminds us, forgive. Because we may be quick to go on a self-righteous vendetta, but he reminds us there is no self-righteousness. There is only the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith alone. So, the good news is that none of us do this very well, but we have a loving and a gracious king and grace abounds and Jesus atoned for all of our sins. So, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, may we be vitally aware of how fickle our allegiance to the king is. But may we also be vitally aware of his unceasing, unconditional love for those who he died for. And when it's not the season to bear fruit, if we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. So I'm going to pray for communion. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward at this time. And we're going to enter into a time of reflection And I'll tell you more about it after we pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you are king. Thank you that you are powerful and that you are wise and that you are able to do something. Thank you that you are acting on our behalf. Thank you that Jesus is our high priest who intercedes on our behalf all the time, even when we sleep even when our minds and hearts are far from him, he intercedes on our behalf. Lord, will you bless us now? Bless our hearts and minds as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Tupper. And will you bless simple physical elements like bread and grape juice and do what only you can do. Make it spiritual nourishment for our souls. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, sorry, I don't know why I keep getting tongue-tied. I've said Lord's Tupper three times now. 
Um, <clears throat> as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we want you to know that this isn't a Presbyterian Lord's Supper. This isn't a Protestant Lord's Supper. This is the Lord's Supper open for all who profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we ask that you would examine your heart. And if that's you, this table is for you. If you have doubts, if you know that you have messed up badly, this table is for you. If you're vitally aware that you're a sinner in need of salvation, this table is for you. If you are not a Christian, if you haven't professed Jesus as your Lord, we would ask you to abstain from coming to the Lord's table right now. And if you have children who have not yet made a profession of faith, we ask that you would keep them from the table also. The way we're going to do this is through intinction, which is a fancy word that means dipping bread in wine. Um, So you'll go to one of the stations and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the grape juice. And if you are unable to come forward, if you'll raise your hand, someone will bring it to you. Um, If you need gluten-free, we have a gluten-free station in the corner there. So I just want you to know that this is the very first time I've ever been able to administer the sacraments, to be able to pray and invite you all to the Lord's Supper, and it is a profound honor. There is something deeply spiritual and moving that happens here because to the outside world, this is just a gem. But something happens when the people of God come in here. And in the same way, this is just bread that you can buy at the store. It's just grape juice. But something happens when we bless it and when we receive it by faith that we become partakers of Christ's body and blood. Not literally, but we are spiritually nourished by Christ himself. And so I encourage you to really examine your heart and think about who Christ is for us And it should be something that's done with reverence, but also great celebration. And one of my favorite things is just always seeing my family here, seeing my brothers and sisters lined up to eat the bread and drink the cup. So the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when you're ready, come partake of the bread and the wine.